Amen. Good morning, church family. Thank you, praise team, for setting it up well. I'm going to use this this morning. Is that okay? It's easier for me. Uh, before I get started, while they're transitioning off the stage, what's this in the floor? What is this? Oh, my goodness, it's a trophy. Today, today, I have a trophy here. If you'd like to come forward and make your plea for who the humblest person in the church is, I'll give you a trophy today. I'm kidding. We got this for, you ready for this? 2022 Elizabeth and Christmas Parade. Second place winner, Sarah Moore right there. I told her just a minute ago, I said, maybe I should just leave this right here for just today. Uh, the... Um, you know, I told her, I said, you know what this means. This means that you are the decorator next year, and perhaps the next year after that. But now you've got the Nick Saban effect where you've come in second. You've got to, you know, pe- the people will demand a winner from now on. It's, it's what's happened, a victim of your own success. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, praise team, for everybody that did that. Great success. I love to see people's light, faces light up in our community as we go by praising Jesus in the van, uh, going down through there. It's just a great thing. All right. Now, with that in mind, uh, we're moving through a Christmas series here. I'm kind of moving around. I don't do do this normally. This is not my normal mode of operation. I'm usually exegetical, and we will be back to that in January, probably going to go through the first four chapters of Genesis. But for today, it is Christmas after all, right? So let's have a Christmas sermon in the Christmas series. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. Uh, you'll read this passage and you'll think probably like Michael did a couple weeks ago whenever I had in there about um, King David as his waning in waxing years there. Is that a misprint in the bulletin? No, it's not a misprint. This is a Christmas text and I will show you how it is all tied in there. But for now, let's read this passage together, shall we? Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. This is the word of God, church. Hear it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for this is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope. For your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Amen. May God have blessing of the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts. Because the grass withers and the flowers fade, but say with me if you know it, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, before I begin here, will you just pray with me real quick? Can we pray again? I know we prayed a lot. Let's pray one more time. Okay, Father... We most certainly thank you for the one that you are, God of heaven and of our lives, and light of light, Lord, you are the one who was begotten, not created. We thank you today, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We thank you you've revealed yourself in 66 books that make one book that reveal your son to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the truth, and we pray that you would open our hearts to the power of your word, your spirit. Pray today and ask that you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We commit this time to you, Lord, to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. It was the 1820s, and time here in North America 
was tumultuous. There was continuing escalations between settlers in the new land and the First Nations that were here, the Cherokee and such in this area. And the solution came, a awful solution, but a solution nonetheless, the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which caused the Cherokee Indians in our neck of the woods, the ones who could not escape up into the mountains, to be taken on a thousand mile plus trek from the subtropical comp the subtropical climate and abundance of resources here in Appalachia to the desolateness of what they must have saw as the frozen plains of Oklahoma. And on that track, they were exposed to many losses, including loss of their homeland, exposure to elements, sickness, and many, many died and never made it all the way to Oklahoma. We commonly look back in history and refer to that moment as the trail of what? The Trail of Tears, an awful dark moment in our nation's history. Well, there is another Trail of Tears in the Bible. It's the Trail of Tears of Rachel. I don't know how familiar you are with her, so in the interest of making sure we're all on the same page, I'd like to take you back to Genesis 29. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to take you back and tell you her story so that we can better understand what's happening here from Jeremiah's perspective. Jacob meets a beautiful young lady named Rachel at the well and is smitten with her. It is truly love at first sight. And so he agrees with joy to work for her father Laban for seven years to win her hand as a bride. And the night comes when they're to be married. And Laban does a dirty trick. He switches Rachel for her sister who is older, Leah. And he has to work another seven years for Rachel's hand. In fact, the first seven years, Jacob mentions that they go by quickly because of his love for her. So he works the additional seven years, 14 years total, to finally win the hand of Rachel. And the night comes and they're married. And we think this couple will finally have the life that they both have dreamed of. It's a love story better than Hallmark could write it, right? Or whatever the... I guess we all don't like Hallmark now, right? What's the new conservative one that makes terrible movies? I can't remember the name of it, but that one, right? They couldn't write it that good. Except it doesn't quite work out the way they hoped. You see, Leah is very fertile. She's producing children for Jacob left and right. No problem. But Rachel is struggling. Her womb is not open gets to a point she's grieved deeply because she cannot bear a child. And she even tells Jacob, she said, give me a child. She's in her anger and her grief. And he looks back to her as every loving husband would and shoots back and says, am I the Lord that I can make such decisions? Right? Eventually, though, Rachel does get pregnant. She has a little boy. And that little boy is Joseph. And everything seems like it's going well. And everything seems it is going good. And much to the joy of Rachel and Jacob, she gets pregnant again. But during this time in between, Jacob runs into a fella and gets into a wrestling match. And the Lord reveals himself to Jacob and El Shaddai and tells him that he will make his descendants great throughout the land and renews the covenant that he had made with Abraham through Jacob. So it will be through Jacob's descendants that God will bless all the nations. 
And so he tells him to go to a new land. They are packing up their bags and they are heading away. Him, his two wives, and his, well, I've left out a little part there. When Rachel couldn't get pregnant, she offered a handmaid up for him to have a child through her. And that went about as well as you would imagine it went. It didn't go well at all, right? And then there's a, a bit of a procreation marathon there and mandrakes passed and things like that. You can read all about that in Genesis. But on the road, they're heading to Bethlehem, the land that is supposed to be the promise helping fulfill the covenant. And on the way, tragedy strikes Rachel's life again. She goes into labor with this second child. And the Bible tells us it's a hard labor. And it's killing her. He's dying as she delivers her second-born son. In fact, with her dying breath, the Bible tells us, as her soul was leaving her body, she names her son Ben-Owen, which means son of my sorrow. And she dies. She never makes it to Bethlehem. They bury her right there on the side of the road, on that journey to that city God had instructed them to go to. Jacob, of course, renames his son because son of my sorrow is pretty rough your first day of kindergarten, I suppose, right? He renames him Benjamin. And those sons that were born from Leah and those two sons that were born from Rachel become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob receives a name from that stranger on the road that he wrestled and he calls him Israel. So Jacob fathers Israel and the nation. But here's the thing about Rachel's life. Klaus Skildera, old Dutch preacher, said this about Rachel's life. He said, when she died there, Thus Rachel dies, not with the smile of faith, but with the tears of a disillusioned life. What a tragedy. Who understands this? See, Rachel's tears become symbolic with tragedy in the nation of Israel. In the bit of a fast-forwarding of the tape here, they go down to Egypt, they procreate, they do very well, they grow, they become slaves, they get freed under Moses' ministry, they go back to Israel, they eventually send up a kingship, and these 12 tribes will uh, stay together to the golden day, which is under the reign of King David and Solomon. And it will be Rachel's children, Benjamin and Joseph's children, who will be the backbone of Israel, both in the north and in the south. But things don't always stay together, do they? After Solomon dies at the height of the golden era of Israel of old, the nation breaks into civil war. The north goes its own way. Eventually, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim are completely gone. They are scattered and defeated. And so... With the incoming foreign armies invading of Assyria in Jeremiah's time, when he pens the word that we wrote today, he is calling back to the lament of Rachel. And he is talking here about what will happen to her grandchildren, the spine of the nation of Israel. They are going to either be put to the sword by the Assyrians, and if they survive that, her grandchildren will be carried away to Babylon to serve under the Babylonians. And so she is not consolable because her children are, as the text says, no more. 
Rachel's 12 tribes serve God, but with a very, very checkered history. God himself still keeps his promises over and over and sends prophets and is faithful to them despite their rebellion all along the way. Rachel's grief is brought into perspective in this text because the situation in Israel is almost too much to bear. And so her tears are synonymous with a brokenness and a sorrow that is almost too much to bear. But Rachel's tears are mentioned in another place in the Bible. Did you know that? Does anyone know where? The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew, chapter 2, for just a moment. It's not on the screen here. You're going to have to follow me from your seat, skipping on down to verse 16. We enter the scene here with an evil man on the throne. Remember, God had promised Jacob that one of his heirs, a son of what would eventually be David, someone from the line of Rachel, would sit on the throne and he would bring the peace. But every king that sat on the throne was just another perpetual failure and plunged him further away from the Lord with the rare few exceptions like Josiah. And we enter now into a time where they are under Roman rule. A foreign government rules them. And now an evil man sits in authority that has been vested in him by the Roman government, King Herod. He is not one of Rachel's children. He is an Edomite. He is descended from the line of Esau. And this man is evil and he is twisted and he is a murderer. He has no patience for even a slight hint of a conspiracy to take away his power and position in Israel. He will have anyone that he even gets the slightest whiff of killed for that. But not just them, mind you. Their spouse and all of their children are to be murdered as well. This is a madman who killed three of his own children because he thought they were going to try to take the throne away from him and he had one of his own wives executed because he feared they would try to take his throne. We read... In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come and they are seeking Christ. They have seen the star. At this point in the story, most commentators believe that Jesus is probably uh, closer to two years old. So your nativity scenes are not accurate if you have the wise men in there yet, right? The, you need to wait till after Christmas for the wise men to show up. They're not actually there, right? If you'd like more fun facts about how your nativity scenes are wrong, please listen to my podcast from last week where Pastor T ruins Christmas. I think you'll enjoy it. But anyway, so faithfully entrusted, Pastor T ruins Christmas. You'll love it. Gather the whole family around the tree and listen to that podcast. Make memories. Get some hot cocoa. Let me ruin your Christmas. Anyway. Uh, and so here we are. A madman sits on the throne. He pretends he wants to worship. He's heard of this king of Israel that is coming. And so he pretends. He tells the magi, well, let me know when you find him so I can worship him as well. Now it's worth noting here that the magi, who probably are descendants from Babylon, which were probably influenced by the Jewish writings when they were carried away during Jeremiah's term time. Isn't that interesting how God puts everything together like that, right? The magi from the east, probably because of Babylonian captivity. They lie to him when they do actually find Christ because they were warned in a dream. And Herod figures out that they're not going to tell him. 
And so here we go. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Mm, 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 mm. Many scholars think that Bethlehem, it's a small town. It's a town of anywhere from 300 to 1,000 people at this time. Hampton, Tennessee is larger than Bethlehem during this time, okay? To get this in your mind. And I'm sure they have, you know, it's a small rural farming type uh, town. And I'm sure they thought themselves insulated a little bit, like we do, from the madness in Rome and in Jerusalem as these twisted madmen who were dark and despicable murder each other for power and money. But yet it finds a way to this small quaint town, this small little village of 300 to 1,000 people. One commentator this week wrote this. He said, We estimate that no more than 20 children were killed. No more than 20? When I read that in my study this week, I thought, what an odd thing to say. No more than 20? Think about it this way. What if I were to stand up here this morning and say, we had a great parade last night here in Carter County. No more than 20 children were killed. Everyone would be like, that doesn't sound like a, that doesn't sound like a great parade to me, right? No doubt, little Bethlehem and that horrible, horrible night where Herod did what he only could logically come to as a wicked man in the flesh, gave the order for the soldiers of his day to gallop into Bethlehem. I want you to, can, can you imagine this? You're in this town. Those soldiers coming into town, you can hear the hooves beating the road. It may have even made vibrations in your home. And he's ordered to take the sword to these children, no more than two years old, these innocents whose only crime is that they were born in Bethlehem and that they were two years old or younger. Could you imagine, beloved, could you imagine the wailing and the crying out of that town that night? Those 20 moms and dads? There was fulfillment in verse 17. That was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. And this night in Bethlehem, these 20, no more than 20 children, are no more. It surely did not make the Roman times of the day. Probably not the Jerusalem paper even. Those cries of those mothers and fathers were heard at the seat of the Almighty. You know, I'll never forget it. 
If I live to be 100 years old or older, I don't really want to necessarily, but God decides to do that. It's his decision. I had to have a funeral once. This was the worst funeral. The one that bothered me the most of the near 100 plus funerals I've done in my career in 20 years. I had to bury a four-year-old boy who was beat to death by his mother's boyfriend one week before Christmas. And I can, I can see the casket in my mind just like I did it yesterday. I can see him in his little Elmo pajamas, the toys around him. I can see his bare little feet when they close the casket. I can see the faces of the family coming up to me wanting to know why. Pastor, why? Why did this happen? No more than 20 children. No more. God's ways are strange, aren't they? Why so much pain? Why so many tears, Lord? Matthew sees a trail of tears from Rachel's death to the Babylonian captivity and to here in Bethlehem today where Christ is to be born. And Herod in his madness and his anger and in his evil comes to try to consume the child that has been promised. But he will fail to bring the sword to Christ. Rachel's tears represent not only the shattered uh, hopes of Jacob's wife, but the shattered lines of those who had gone into exile who were opposed, and here the shattered lives of those 20 or so children who never grew up like little Tony Hank. But God is going to do something. And it begins when Herod dies. Here's the beautiful thing. Herod wants desperately to kill Jesus and end Him. But Herod will die and Christ will live. No, God is doing something new. You see, Matthew doesn't want you to stop reading. He doesn't want you to stop reading Jeremiah. Because if you'll go on after the section of Scripture that we read today, what you'll find out is that God is bringing about a new covenant and that He is doing a new thing. He is, <laughs> he is assuring us of this, that death and sorrow will not have the last word. I think of the scene of Simon in the temple. All these failed kings. And each time a new king is installed, the, this one's worse than the one before. This one takes another step away from God. This one lands in a position that is untenable for Israel. And the people are waiting and waiting 
children are dying and then wicked kings are installed and children are carried away and taken from their homes like Daniel. And Israel's heart is broken over and over and over again. And here's Simon, an old man in the temple, and Anna who is serving there. And who do they see? They see Christ. It is a divine revolution that is happening here in Matthew chapter 2. And what is going to happen is the tears in Bethlehem, the tears in Babylon, the tears in Jerusalem, the tears on the side of the road in Bethlehem, and the tears in your life and in mine are going to be turned upside down. And it will be Christ who will dry our eyes. In this life, tears and weeping and sadness and sorrow remain, and it feels as if they win. But then the Son of God enters this. Don't you see? Jesus Christ entered a world that was turbulent, He entered a world where there was oppression, He entered a world where children are murdered, He entered a world where there was pure hatred. He entered a world where people care more about their own glory and their own good and their own finances more than they care about any other human being or much less God. That sounds real familiar, doesn't it? He entered the same world that we live in. The desire of the nations is born in a rural backwater town of 300 people. And even as the wicked pawn of Satan, Herod, and he's always got one, he's always got a wicked pawn somewhere, even as the Son of the Most High enters into the world through a virgin's womb, the enemy of our souls tries to consume him in his cruelty. Jesus, in fact, must enter the world. He must enter the world He must die in order to deliver the world from the bondage that it is in. Dry your tears. You can almost hear it from Matthew. The hope of the world has come and His name is Jesus Christ. And I think about this passage every Christmas and I think about His name was Tony Hawk. Tony Hack. Tony Hawk's a skater. Tony Hack. It was a little boy I buried. And I think about little Tony every Christmas. Every Christmas I think about him. And I think about this passage. And I think about these little children murdered in Bethlehem. And I I think about the fact of this. And this is a very comforting, beautiful thought. And I hope this helps you today. The babes in Bethlehem will not stay in their grave forever. The babies of Bethlehem that were taken that horrific night will be raised by the babe of Bethlehem who comes with healing in his wings. And not just those babes, but all the precious babes we've lost along the way. Isn't that comforting and beautiful? Mercy of God is here. Joy is here. One of these days, all those babies of Bethlehem who were slaughtered that fateful night will be raised up alive. Jesus escaped the evil plans. Herod dies. Jesus 
lives the perfect life, dies the perfect death, and defeats death and comes out of the grave on the third day. What does this mean, Pastor? Here's what this means. First of all, believe in Christ who lives. Believe in the one who come to make all things new. It means believe in Christ who restores and forgives. It means know this, beloved. That sadness and sorrow. And I'm talking about the sadness of sorrow that is beyond words. Sadness and sorrow and death will not have the last word in this sin-sick world that we live in. Because Jesus Christ is the final word. And His word brings everlasting hope and joy. And I must trust that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. And there are those in this room that have sorrows that I would be ashamed to compare mine to. Deep sorrows of brokenness that they have cried out to in the night. And Lord, with each passing day, it feels as if sorrow and darkness and death and evil are winning. Internally and externally, it feels as if they will have the final word, but we are reminded today that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are the beginning and the ending, and you will have the last word. Lord, help us. Help us today to see that. You have done a new thing. You have conquered death as you promised. You have come to raise the sons of men. Lord, thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today you've heard the gospel proclaimed. You have heard of the one babe of Bethlehem who brings healing and hope in his wings. But do you know him? If you don't, I'm going to be in the back to receive you during this time. Make that sure today. Make that sure today. Or if you want to be part of this church family through baptism or through joining the church, I'd love to get that conversation started with you. Or if you just want to come down here and pray this morning and just thank God for Christ. Thank God He did not leave us in a sin-sick world that is full of death and destruction and sorrow. But He gave us the new covenant and He has given us a new life in Christ. You can do that as we sing. Please stand.